Kunz. This show is all about the people behind the science of so. biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. Life, life Dr. Mandel is a scientist, entrepreneur, and leading expert in synthetic biology, protein engineering, artificial intelligence, and biological and medical informatics. Together with Dr. George Church, he leveraged genomically recoded organisms, or GROWs, to produce the first proteins with stability and function dependent on non-standard amino acids. Last November, Grow Bio closed on a $25 million Series A financing led by Leaps by Bayer and, and Red Mile, and that brought their total investment to date up to about $32 million. Dr. Mandel completed his research fellowship in genetics at Harvard Medical School, where he was a Howard Hughes Medical Institute Fellow of the Life Sciences Research Foundation. He received his PhD from the University of California, San Francisco, his MSc at University of Edinburgh, and his undergrad degree in symbolic systems from Stanford University. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Really appreciate having you on the show. Thanks, John. It's great to be speaking with you. So when you were a kid, did you think you were going to be a synthetic biologist? I was actually uh, really into special effects, and I wanted to grow up to work for an outfit like Industrial Light and Magic and make special effects for George Lucas. So, you know, I was the kid in the mid-90s whose idea of a biology project was to animate photosynthesis or a Latin project to, you know, animate the Trojan horse. So that was how I got through most of my projects in school and got myself into computation, but did discover that I just was not artistically talented enough to make a living out of that. So it ultimately got me into sort of the underpinnings of computation. And as I got into my undergrad, um, I did get into CS. Um, symbolic systems, as you mentioned, is a weird major that they actually only have at Stanford, but it's basically like cognitive science, where you study philosophy, psychology, linguistics, and logic, and a lot of CS. And you got to figure out how to focus it. And for me, uh, that focus came through biology. I was always pretty bad uh, with my hands in high school. I was not good at experiments in biology class, but I was so interested in the principles behind it. Um, and I almost felt like computation was a backdoor to get into the life sciences. And so focused on that uh, throughout my undergrad, that master's degree I did at Edinburgh was actually trying to use machine learning tools to model protein interactions from primary sequence without me even knowing what an amino acid was. It was a really misguided project, but again, was enough to get me excited about biophysics and biochemistry to the point that I, I jumped into a PhD at UCSF. And that's where I really under, uh, got to understand this field of what we call computational protein design, where we use computer algorithms to try to model the conformational dynamics of proteins and engineer new functions, maybe even those that, that nature hasn't discovered yet. And as a designer, it was always kind of striking how we have precisely 20 building blocks to work with in terms of the amino acid alphabet. And so, of course, you know, you see all of the diversity of life that's been created in three and a half billion years using these 20 building blocks. But as, you know, engineers and, you know, medical science professionals, we don't want to have to wait on that timescale. We want to be able to engineer biology forwards in ways that nature hasn't taken us yet. And so as a designer, you're, you really wish you had more of these building blocks, so to speak. 
So when I, I came out to, to Boston to do this uh, postdoctoral fellowship with George that you mentioned, they were just finishing these new so-called genomically recorded organisms, which really are the first organisms that let us go beyond those, those 20 standard amino acids. It's amazing, though, how you found your way into life sciences, you know, through the computational sciences and really inspired early on at, at a younger age, like you said, wanting to go to work for, uh, for George Lucas someday. It was a different George that you ended up working with along the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they both, they both have pretty solid beards, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I think, I think my George might take the cake there. Yeah, no, and pretty solid, impressive skills that, you know, have contributed to uh, great outcomes, both on the entertainment side and on the biology side, I will say, for, for George Church, right? Well, and maybe picking on that for a minute, you know, for our audience, that may not be a familiar name, but certainly in our world, George is a really a, an institution in and of himself. He's a legend. Maybe, can you talk a little bit about what that was like working with him and why, what is it about him that maybe um, has allowed him to be successful in spinning out so many great ideas into companies or advances in science? Uh, maybe you could just share a little bit of insight around that. Yeah, you know, George's lab is often kind of equated to the sort of Willy Wonka's chocolate factory of biotechnology or synthetic biology. There's just so many interesting people doing projects that I think in a lot of contexts would have been deemed impossible. And so he sort of, I think, does a very good job finding, frankly, nice, smart people who are willing to take risks. And you look at a lab that has, you know, whatever, 80 to 100 people in it, part of it's the numbers, right? And then part of it's the culture that gets built. It's, quite frankly, it's not a place where you go if you want a fair amount of handholding or direction imposed on you. And, you know, I had done my PhD in a very small lab where I had a incredibly generous PI uh, in Tanya Kortemi at UCSF, who spent, you know, hours with me every week staring at protein structures and, you know, love nothing more than to sit there with us in the lab and talk about science. You can't do that when you have 100 people in your lab. So it's a challenging place for somebody who I think needs that level of direction. If you've had that level of finer granularity management prior to that, and you're ready to sort of be more independent. It's really, it's hard to imagine a better place to be because of that wealth of personnel. Quite frankly, it's very well resourced. And so you have the resources you need to pursue more complex and expensive ideas and then you have somebody who will continually push you to think, you know, bigger. And that's something you have to be a little bit careful with, you know, because you will be asked, you'll come with an idea of going to Tahiti and the response should be, you should go to the moon, right? And, you know, so you have to be a little careful about it. But in the end, you know, I think for a certain phenotype, it's, it's completely ideal. And, you know, he does a good job sort of walking that line between engaging with all these projects, but also giving people just sort of the freedom to self-organize. And what you end up with is kind of an economy of skills. So for example, in our case, you know, I came with a background of computational protein design. I'd mentioned earlier, I didn't have great hands in high school, or even in grad school, I was still kind of getting used to it. So I built a collaboration with my future co-founder, Mark LaJoy, who was and is a fantastic um, experimental synthetic biologist and is the person who really took the lead on the project to construct that first genomically recorded organism. And he taught me how to utilize these genome engineering techniques to engineer organisms. Um, I hopefully taught him something about protein structure and design. He ironically did go off to do a postdoc with David Baker, kind of maybe the best known protein design lab. That's one example of, I think, a broader phenomenon in George's lab, which is that people bring their skill sets together, they share ideas, and that's kind of how projects get formed that can solve big problems. Pretty diverse skill sets and maybe a welcoming environment. Just I'm putting words in your mouth, but that diversity 
and the need to collaborate to go forward and pursue those big scientific questions and aim for the moon like like you've been challenged, like you said. But it, it sounds also to be a place where the nexus of innovation is happening across different disciplines. And just your path you know, into life sciences is different than many's when you think about you know, moving in through the, the computational door. Even my own path, a business background by training, always loved the science. I've spent my whole career you know, really adjacent to the scientists, but also working very closely with bankers and investors, venture capitalists and hedge funds. And But I often tell many that are considering a, a pathway in biotech that you don't necessarily need to be a scientist even to get in and participate in a bioscience company. And, you know, your angle and your pathway, certainly computer science uh, at the core, but a different doorway in, as you've described, I think is really, really interesting. Well, you know, one of the things we talked about at the onset was your formation of Grow Biosciences. Can you talk a little bit about the company, the platform, and also kind of was there was there a eureka moment when you know you had this breakthrough and you and you said we've got it and we need to move forward with a company or was it a little more complicated than that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the eureka moment sort of came with respect to the underlying technology that combined the world of computational protein design with these genomically recoded organisms. So the platform that we're built upon is the result of. You know, easily over a decade of work from many talented scientists uh, in George's lab. I mentioned uh, Mark LaJoy, but there are others who led projects that were essential to be able to do the kind of engineering that produces an organism like that. So when I got to the lab, that organism was nearing completion. I didn't participate in the construction of the organism. Where I came in was, how do we bring in these computational protein design tools to create proteins using these non-standard amino acids facilitated by this organism in ways that couldn't be done before? So our first project was actually what we call biocontainment. And the idea is, as you begin to deviate from the standard genetic code, as we've done in these organisms, it becomes impossible for viruses to infect these organisms. Viruses require that your genetic code and theirs are harmonious. Otherwise, when you translate their RNA or DNA, it's going to produce gobbledygook, right? And so if you could change your genetic code, you'd also become impervious to viruses. So these new bacteria that have modified genetic codes are already partially resistant to phages, and some of the ones coming down the pike are going to be completely resistant to phages. So that's wonderful from a biotechnological standpoint because we have seen in industry tragic cases of phage infections or viral infections in fermenters or bioreactors that are producing a really important product like a protein-based medicine for a patient population with rare disease, for example. And we have seen cases where those facilities have to be shut down for months, millions of dollars are lost, and, and most importantly, patients are suffering because they simply can't get their medication. So these viral resistant microbes are actually really important. However, um, you could be forgiven for asking, well, what happens if one of these viral resistant organisms escapes into the wild? Is it going to have some sort of evolutionary advantage that will allow it to outcompete naturally occurring microbes? And so that is sort of the impetus for the biocontainment project. And, you know, George likes to say that we're building the seatbelts before the cars here because those organisms weren't even done yet. But mm. um, to get ahead of that, we did the first project that really combined computational protein design with these new, what we call non-standard amino acids in these uh, recoded organisms. And the idea was, and, yeah, go ahead. And can I, can I pause you there for just a minute with our quick definitional 
break, talk a little bit about, and I'll let you get right back. I didn't mean to break your cadence, but describe for our audience the importance of an amino acid as it relates to a protein and why proteins matter for therapeutic drug discovery. Great question. And please, please interrupt you as much as possible to make sure I don't get too jargony. So all of life, all the proteins in life are constructed from these amino acid building blocks. And there are 20 of them. And you, John, and myself, and a rabbit, and corn, and a moth all pretty much share the exact same genetic code. And therefore, we have, and we have the same proteins composition of, of amino acids. And that's been true for about three and a half billion years. And so why we're interested in these new amino acids is because they can provide features that the 20 standard amino acids don't uh, provide. And as we talk more about GrowBio, I can talk a bit about how we're using those to modulate the immune system in ways that the 20 standard amino acids can't do, or to confer um, stabilities in certain environments that the 20 standard amino acids cannot confer stability in. So those are all sort of the fundamental driving forces behind the broader work here. Got it. Got it. No, that's helpful. Special thanks to our sponsors, World Business Chicago. Connect with World Business Chicago, the city's economic development agency, and discover more about the city's vibrant life science ecosystem. From Chicago's global universities and research institutions to its diverse pipeline of skilled talent and vibrant neighborhoods, as well as its cutting edge lab and office space, Chicago has the fuel for your company's success. There's no better place to build a life science company than in Chicago. Yeah, and, and carrying on as you talked a little bit about the breakthrough that led into then the formation of Grow, where do things stand at Grow as a platform? I know that if you look at kind of forming a, a new co in biotech, sometimes you're focused on a key therapeutic application. Other times you're focused on a platform. And I understand Grow is more focused on the platform since it has so many different applications. But is that the business model to kind of continue to leverage the platform in as broad a, a way as possible? Or do you see kind of narrowing towards certain disease areas? And, and if so, are there certain types of diseases that might benefit first if you move in that direction? This is the fundamentally most important question that a, a company like GrowBio is faced with. You know, you have a powerful platform in, in a somewhat cringeworthy way. You could almost say it's a platform of platforms because you have the organism itself. And then each new amino acid that you add to the platform enables its own set of products, right? You can think of each of these as having kind of a superpower that can be endowed into any protein therapeutic of a certain class. So this question of, you know, what chemistries did you add to the amino acid alphabet? And therefore, what indications did you pursue is the biggest challenge we face and the biggest risk to go off the rails. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about this. Really, the way that we go about this, there's, it's unavoidable to go at this from two directions at the same time. You have to consider both the universe of non-standard amino acid chemistries available to us and sort of what we would call technical feasibility and the world of unmet clinical needs, right? And so if you look at you know, what's out there in the clinic, what are some disease indications that you know, have a large patient population with unmet needs where there's not something obvious coming down the pike? We call these you know, presently unsolvable problems. Which of those problems could be addressed by a new amino acid chemistry? And a way you could turn that around is you could say, which cannot be addressed by proteins made from the existing amino acid alphabet, right? And so for autoimmune, for example, this is how we got here. You know, we're developing a, uh, a set of amino acids that have sugar molecules on them, which are the signature by which the immune system 
distinguishes self from non-self. And you can't make proteins that have these defined sugar signatures on them using any standard production system or using the standard 20 amino acids. Life has a way of kind of, in, of attaching those sugar molecules in certain contexts, but it's not engineerable. We can't take an arbitrary protein and then define that sugar composition. So by bringing that to the amino acid level, where we can clearly define a sequence and say we're going to have this sugar molecule at this position and, by, and all over the, the protein surface, you can actually define how the immune system responds to that protein. And so you can take a protein that raises an autoimmune disease and now say we're going to make that same protein, but we're going to decorate it with sugar molecules that tell the body this is actually a self-protein and re-educate the immune system to recognize this protein as a self-protein and thereby reverse the autoimmune disease. That's not something that you can do with the 20 standard amino acids, really. And so that's an example of like a holy grail problem, as we would say, that really isn't solvable another way. And those are sort of the areas where we like to, to focus the company. Um, to your question around indications, there you get a little bit finer granularity, right? So, it, okay, here's a particular autoimmune disease. How well is it characterized? What is the mechanism of pathogenesis? And what is likely coming down the clinical pipeline? You spend a lot of time talking to key opinion leaders and physicians who run large clinical trials, who are frontline providers of patients to ask them these questions, right? Is there a big unmet need here? Is this problem going to be solved in 12 months? Or is this a patient population who's suffering and there's really no help on the horizon, right? And then mechanistically, do we think we understand how this new amino acid could play into a pathway that ameliorates this problem? And if the answer is yes, uh, or you know, likely yes to all of these, that's a good indication for us to pursue, right? So you're looking at clinical risk, commercial risk, mechanistic risk, and technical feasibility all at once. And in general, would you say, I know one thing that as you continue to move downstream, you need to make more material. You know, you're going to be treating more patients or your partners will be treating more patients in these disease areas. So then a question can come up over time around, is it scalable? You know, you mentioned some of the deficiencies of current therapeutics, you know, some of the adverse issues that, you know, are presently faced and that your platform could overcome. Can you make material at scale, do you think, as you move downstream efficiently? Scalability is, is one of the key advantages of our platform. And when we talk about genomic recoding, really what we mean is making uh, modifications to the organism in a way that actually facilitates scalability. The ways that non-standard amino acids have been incorporated traditionally prior to the advent of these genomically recoded organisms is by basically trying to outcompete the natural translational machinery in the cell. So let's put in so much tRNA with this new amino acid that it can fight off the other proteins in the cell that are trying to install uh, that amino acid or compete with that tRNA. That's something that lets you make a small to medium amount of protein. But when you need to actually satisfy a patient population or meet a commercial need, you really went into trouble. And so with these recoded organisms, um, we have no competition with any of the translational machinery in the cell anymore. We're able to remove that. And there's no off-target incorporation. That is to say, where you choose to put the amino acid is the only place it goes. If you don't recode the organism, there are hundreds or thousands of other places in the genome where that amino acid could incorporate. And number one, that's going to be inefficient. But number two, it's probably going to make the organism sick because now you're sticking this amino acid in places that are intended for another 
meaning or function. And I would say, you know, the, the quote of today's conversation is life has a way of attaching sugar molecules. I love that. I'm going to coin that phrase because, <laughs> um, you know, you could you could put anything next to that, you know, the beginning of that sentence, life has a way. I just didn't see it coming when you're going to say attaching a sugar molecule. <laughs> that was great. Well, you know, um, life finds a way is one of the key mantras of, of all of our work. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, that's I mean, that's a Jurassic Park quote yes. too, right? I mean, and some of the stuff it, I just keep kind of moving in and out of like sci-fi as I hear you talk and just, you know, thinking about your original vision of what you were going to be doing. You're, you're pretty close to that from, you know, where you were thinking as a kid, but you're really in it. It's not even theater. It's, it's the real deal. So that's even cooler. Well, you know, now you're the CEO of Grow and maybe you could comment just even for others that might aspire to follow your path, you know, scientists, engineers, those that, you know, are in the academic realm, what's it been like transitioning from the lab to your role as the CEO so far? What are, what are some of the notable differences? In my opinion, it's the greatest adventure you can go on. The number of differences is you could talk for days about it. Um, it's really, and I think it's one of those things that's a little bit difficult to know if you're cut out for it until you try. But there are aspects of it that I think can serve as, you know, kind of early checkpoints for people who are considering this pathway. You know, just first and foremost is, is risk tolerance, right? You're going to be moving into an area where you're really on the edge of a knife for along multiple dimensions all the time. And you need to get comfortable with that position, right? You need to be able to maintain positivity and a positive outlook while being realistic, right? And that realism has to apply to yourself and to your stakeholders and to your employees, because the reason why people are going to give you money is because you've got some really cool idea that's going to solve an unsolvable problem right now. But it has to also be grounded in reality. A lot of us who come from the academy, myself especially included, you know, we're used to a world where if you produce something novel, you get currency out of it. Uh, in, in academia, that's a paper, right? And so here's, here's a cool story. Uh, here's some great data. We wrote it up. It gets into a journal. Achievement unlocked, on to the next, right? What happens is you kind of get a mindset that like, I made a cool thing, someone's going to want to buy this. And that's just not how it works, right? And so I think you have to mm -hmm. shift from this mindset of who will buy my thing to what do people need and can I provide that, right? Yeah. And it's a process that in industry is called customer discovery. And it's something that none of us do enough of coming out of the academy, it's a process by which you go out and talk to potential customers. And a customer could be, you know, a an end-to-end -end customer, but it could also be like a pharmaceutical company or a biotechnology company that could potentially license your product, right? And in an unbiased way, talk about what is in the way of their own productivity, what are their needs, without telling them your idea. Because the truth is, people are too nice. And if you tell them your idea and you ask them what they think, almost invariably, they're going to say, oh, that sounds great. I would totally love that. And then you build the thing and you ask them, how many can I put you down for? And they say, oh, well, actually, you know, it wasn't that, that it's not a need to have problem, right? And we have another way of addressing that. So you need to, to do a lot of work to find the unmet need and make sure there's a there there. I think none of us coming out of the, very few, I'll say very few, it's never good to talk in absolutes, but we all need to be pushed. And so one of the things that you do is surround yourself with advisors and investors who push you that way. And number two, let yourself be molded and sculpted by that feedback. 
Oh, that's that's excellent. In my experience, that's the mindset that really makes the difference between someone that can operate in the the long game of biotech and always listening and learning because things are always changing and and being moldable early on clearly has set you apart early in your career as you move down this pathway. What was it like raising the money in your Series A? I, I noticed, you know, uh, Leaps by Bayer, they're a great firm. We've had the opportunity to collaborate with them on a, a couple of startups that I've been involved in, and they clearly really excited about, you know, the synthetic biology realm with regards to the investment and grow. But can you talk a little bit about your experience raising the A round? Yeah, we're thrilled to be working with Leaps and and with Red Mile and to have the continuing participation of our investors from our seed rounds. You know, I think we built a good deal of expertise around the table um, around what a synthetic biology company should look like in the first couple rounds. But with these new additions, we've got, I think, some really critical expertise in, in pharmaceutical development and late stage development and commercialization. And so there's, I think there's kind of two things you look for, right? One is that the rounding out the expertise that you're going to need to guide this company to success. And two is finding investors that share your vision. Even back in the early days of the company, I had my first conversation with a potential VC. I was very honest with them that like, you know, you don't want to be ever arrogant and be like, yeah, we're going to be wildly successful and have total control of our future. But you do want to be clear about your vision. And, and, you know, for me and for my co-founders, we didn't start GrowBio to like build it and flip it as quickly as possible. We see such incredible potential here. I mean, you're talking about this, right, unlimited universe of chemistries and all these applications that it's hard to imagine, at least for me, a more intellectually exciting place to be and have a place that could have, you know, broader impact. But obviously, that needs to be grounded in something concrete and focused. So when I talk to investors early on, I wanted them to be clear that, you know, we ideally want to build the company out, you know, quite broadly. And so I think I was successful in bringing people on who are like-minded, who can see the broad vision, how this could be a revolutionary technology and how we're going to get there. For the A round, you need that as well, but you also need it to be a bit more grounded and focused. And, you know, at that time, we had developed this idea around using these uh, these sugar molecule bearing amino acids to modulate the immune system. And so we had built out the platform, we had built out a fermentation of our organism, so we showed it can be scaled. We had developed some reduction of practice in multiple different disease areas uh, and had you know some partnering discussions and collaborations underway. So I think we had built a nice foundation around the technology, the team, our advisorship and so forth. And now we are ready to kind of really throw ourselves into a couple important areas. And one of the things that happened with Leaps by Bear is they have these grand challenges that they have a mandate for. They call them leaps. And one of them is reversing autoimmune disease. And so it was a very good fit to work with a company like ours that's you know, developing a technology that not only would go after a single indication, but could be broadly applied across uh, a number of different autoimmune applications. And that was, I think, a big driving force between us and, and, and Leaps as a lead investor. Well, it seems like you did an outstanding job of finding the right partners, you know, in each of your rounds that you've completed. But that alignment is allowing you to kind of make that vision a reality. And, you know, oftentimes that can trip up a company is maybe focusing on the money and maybe less on the people behind the money and what their intent and goals and strategy might be. But you've really, you know, put together a stellar syndicate to help you, you know, really realize your vision. And I would imagine the same is true for the team you're putting together, but any comments around uh, what that's been like, putting together a team that uh, is capable, much like you experienced in George's lab, that diversity in the culture and the concept of you know finding 
you know, the right people to fit that culture and the right cultural values that you aspire to. How has that gone? And what are some of the key learnings from building your team? There's nothing more important um, organizationally. And we've quite, I think, fiercely guarded our culture and tried to build the company, we hope, the right way. Um, you know, I think we've, we've been fortunate to be able to grow at a reasonable pace. So we're, we're quite considered about each hire. Everybody meets everybody and goes through a pretty rigorous vetting process. And has everyone in the company has a lot of input to it. I would say there are three key aspects of our culture that we try to maintain. One is ownership of ideas. We want to have a culture where people come to work every day, not because you know we're asking them to do something or necessarily even just because they want a paycheck, but because there's experiments they're running that day that's going to generate data that they are excited to see. And the reason why they're excited to see it is they've been handed a problem and given a certain amount of free reign to decide how to solve it. And then, of course, as a result of that, credit for the way they've gone about solving it. We are a matrix organization. There's a lot of crosstalk between the different divisions in our company, but we really do try to give people that ownership of the problem they're working on to the extent that they're capable of and that they want it. Of course, that means we need to attract people that are that way. And so we're very candid, again, in, in hiring. Like That's an important part of our culture, and we want to do our best to bring people in who seek that out. We also value transparency a lot. right? In any organization, you need to have a certain level of abstraction. There has to be a certain level of protection of the employees from things going on at the executive level. But we really do try to bring people into the decision-making process, let them know what we're up against, let them know what we're considering, let them know why we reached a decision that we did, and openly solicit feedback about it. And I think that's a level of transparency that people in our company appreciate, at least based on their feedback. And then the third thing is establishing a place where people really want to win for the person standing next to them. People genuinely care about each other, and you know they know that if they if they if they fail, it'll hurt the person next to them. If they succeed, it'll help them. And I think you know people coming to work because, in part of the possible impact they can make in patients if we're successful, as well as the impact it can make to you know people that they like that they view as friends that will benefit as if they succeed. And, and I think that we have that. Now we're only sixteen people right now. We're um, in the process of hiring, so we're going to hopefully grow by about five more soon. And that, again, that pace has helped us. And at some point, if we're lucky enough to be successful to grow well beyond that, there will be some cultural dilution. But we do fiercely guard that and do our best to maintain it. And so far, the feedback seems to have been that it's generally effective. And, and when people come in to interview, I think that they get a really clear sense of that. Yeah, that's excellent. And a, and a very wise approach that I think will put you in good stead for uh, well into the future as you keep moving forward with your milestones. And maybe just staying on that topic for a minute, the talent pipeline and moving far upstream and thinking about inspiring others to kind of get into the biotech field all the way down to the grade school and high school level. One of the things you said early on was that you're not an artist, that many of the things that you talked about and the things that you have been involved in, I almost consider very, extremely creative and beyond the science. If you had to give advice to you know a high school student that maybe is on the fence about their future career path, what would your pitch be to give biotech a chance as they consider, you know, moving forward into their, whether they go to college or get right into the workforce moving forward? Yeah, there's really two things I'd probably say. One is that there are so many ways into this world, it's kind of hard to go wrong, but I wouldn't try to peg yourself to something super early. So for example, if you like biology or chemistry or physics or math or computer science, 
or anything remotely related to what we're doing, engineering, if you get into that and uh, you excel at it, you can find your way into this field. I think that there's sort of like this one kind of gotcha here, whereas people look at what they do and what we do, and it's, oh, it's it's biochemistry and biophysics and structural biology, computer science and AI, and, you know, I need to to learn all those things, right? You don't, right? And, and so, in fact, I think one of the things people need to bear in mind is you really do still need to understand the fundamentals. Like, you got to understand, you know, biophysics and chemistry and those things. And, and just what university will teach you is going to be both sufficient and necessary. That said, definitely do everything you can to find opportunities to do research. The earlier, the better, quite frankly, you know, get into labs and partly, you know, yes, it, it looks good on a resume, but, you know, do you like this? Is this, you know, is this fun for you? Do you, you know, science is slow, right? We, we talk about all this, this high profile stuff and a lot of the work seems very sexy, but in the end, it's, it's mostly failure. It's mostly doing an experiment, seeing an un- unexpected result. Hopefully you ran the right controls to make sense of that result and then choosing the next question to ask. And really, what what makes what defines good science from bad science? Good science is running the right control, setting up the experiment with the right conditions, and asking a question so that when the experiment is over, you've learned something irrespective of the outcome, and you use that learning to ask the next question. That's that's it. <laughs> yeah, and it's the scientific process too. Just like you said, a lot of those buzzwords can be both intimidating or maybe give a glorified view of of what science is, depending on how you you look at those terms and, and words. But your point, I think, is very well taken in the sense that it's so much more about persistence and accepting of the realities of failure and what that's teaching you that lead to those crave for high points along a long arc. Yes. <laughs> but if if what you're looking for is instant gratification or quick upsides and and no downside, then this is a more treacherous path for that type of individual. De- definitely. And, you know, people who make the transition from computer science to life sciences really have to go through that fire, right? Because, you know, if something's wrong with your computer program, you can throw into a debugger and look at the guts of it and understand what's going on very rapidly, generally speaking. And if you set up the debugger the right way, you can usually squash that bug pretty quickly. In a cell, that's really hard, right? And so there's way too many things moving around to understand what's going on. So this is why it's so critical to ask the right question, keep the questions small enough and keep the controls correct so that whatever happens, you've learned something and you can continue to narrow down that uncertainty until you do understand or until you've built the thing. On the other hand, what's so cool about this is while it's gratifying to make a computer program and you write it and it can run in all these places and it's it's adding something to the world and it's generally very personal and powerful, there's something special about engineering life, right? Where, you know, here is a living cell that is doing something that you, for lack of a better term, programmed it to do. When you start to gain some sense of what's going on inside of the cell, of the symphony of things that are all happening, and you can sort of vaguely visualize your changes and how the cell is actually implementing them, it's frankly mind-blowing. And that's a that's a pleasure that I think people sometimes lose sight of when you're in a lab just squirting colorless liquids from one tube to another. But what's actually going on here is so incredibly profound that I think it can help kind of keep you going through the hard times. Absolutely. As a North Star, I mean, that is what can keep you going during those low points too, is just at the end of the day, your aim is to help a patient. So I think that's a that's a great way to think about it. You know, maybe as you 
also look at biomanufacturing, you know, as you continue to move your products downstream and into the patients and into commercialization, you know, one of the areas that we are aware is increasing in demand, and that's biomanufacturing capacity. Some of that's hardware, but a lot of it's talent. So when we think about talent, you know, to be able to manage the the breakthroughs that, you know, will happen at GrowBio that eventually, you know, kind of need to be at scale, can you maybe comment a little bit about diversity of talent opportunity for biomanufacturing as that capacity needs to increase over time to support these, you know, breakthrough technologies that that you're working on right now? I get I guess what I'm saying there is, you know, moving beyond the science and more into maybe the manufacturing and the engineering, are there roles in biomanufacturing that may welcome a more diverse workforce that maybe we crave to invite into biotech? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, maybe as a as an industry, our, our bar is oftentimes a little bit too high in terms of what we demand from people who are joining us. Uh, you know, a lot of the things that are done don't require a PhD or oftentimes even a master's degree. And you could even argue a bachelor's degree, right? So there are aspects of what we do that I think you could equate to other jobs that people do with their hands. With the right training, you can take people from all kinds of different backgrounds and turn them into people who are productive in a laboratory. You know, it's not that hard to run a PCR. It's not that hard to culture cells. I think historically, we've, we've said, oh, you've got to have a PhD to do science. And, and, you know, what's interesting what happened is that, you know, in the, let's say the early 2010s, you know, we were producing as an academy, like tons of PhDs. And of course, the number of universities is does not go up very quickly. And therefore, the number of jobs do not go up very quickly. And so, you know, the yeah. postdoctoral pool just swelled. Uh, this thing that was invented 20 years prior as kind of a purgatory became sort of a terminal job destination, but with no real opportunity to grow your career. So what do you do? Well, this is where biotech has maybe answered the call here. And we did perhaps have a bit of an overly exuberant response in, in sort of the mid to late 20. Tens, uh, where maybe a little bit too much capital came in and too many companies were funded and grew too quickly. And we're now seeing, of course, the response to that. And there's a maybe a, a correction, um, but going on. What has happened is that I think people who want to do really cool science, who perhaps don't necessarily see the academy as the right path forward, but who you know maybe want to be a little bit more risk tolerant and innovative than what you might see at a more traditional pharma company, get that kind of happy medium in a biotechnology company. But you don't have to be a PhD either, right? And so to work on biomanufacturing, fermentation, process development, you know, we can teach people from a variety of backgrounds how to do that. And I think, you know, we we certainly have a GrowBio, you know, we bet on really smart, great people who are super curious, and it turns out they can learn to do almost anything. And that's what you got to look for. And so if you have a motivated person from a background where maybe they just weren't offered the right opportunities, to develop these skills, you know, we want that. We want those people coming into our field, and frankly, we need it. I was just going to say the last thing you said there: is we need it. It's required for the industry to scale. So it's an exciting time, I think, and I believe very promising to you know set the stage for, as you've described it, smart people with the opportunity to learn and a willingness to be malleable and apply those skills to biomanufacturing. I think we'll see a lot of opportunity for job growth well into the future with regards to that. So, you know, we're winding down the conversation, but I just had maybe one closing question. It's just a little bit more futuristic again, and that is thinking about the so-called biocentury that we are living in right now. Talk a little bit about the longer term. What do you think 
synthetic biology's role will have played in the biocentury. If we were able to look back 100 years from now, what do we think? Where, where do we think synthetic biology fits into that overall schema? Probably the biggest challenge with synthetic biology historically has been its fragility. And so, you know, going back the last 20, arguably 30 years, synthetic biology did a great job showing really thought-provoking and innovative proof of concepts where you can begin to create, you know, networks in cells or, or put logic into cells or engineer and synthesize things that couldn't be made by biology before. But the problem has been, I think, twofold. One is that the fragility that I mentioned. So you take that system out of a given context and it breaks, or you try to implement it in a different type of cell and it breaks, or you try to get it to do something a bit different and it breaks, right? And, you know, again, the goal of an academic, right, just for better or for worse, is to produce something interesting and new that can be built off of. And so it doesn't necessarily been put into the system that it should be robust or it should be generalizable, right? And so I think we found as a field that oftentimes that was hampering us. Somebody makes a really cool result and then it isn't really useful in, in other contexts. And then sort of what we talked about scalability, but to take that a step further is actually sort of, you know, a bit mundane, but, but cost, right? And so if you look at some of the grand challenges that synthetic biology has set out to face, Earlier on in the field, it was, you know, we're going to make biofuels, we're going to make biomaterials, we're going to take things that are made by petrochemical engineering, and make a very cheap green version of them in a microbial fermenter. And, you know, quite frankly, the challenge has been we just can't get that to a scale and cost that's competitive with traditional mechanisms. We have for some things, but, you know, what's happens, I think people have taken a slightly more realistic approach on what actually are the problems that can be solved right now. And so you see companies like Amaris and Ginkgo getting into fragrances, right? You know, and now you're making compounds that are really expensive to make chemically, and now they can be made through a uh, in vivo process where it's not quite a race to the bottom cost-wise. And that's just a, a reality of the world we live in. These early technologies take time to become cost-effective. We will get there. Someday we probably will make fuels uh, in, in microbes or other no, thankfully not petrochemical ways, but, you know, we had to start in cases that are a little bit less cost sensitive, quite frankly, therapeutics is one of them, right? You know, where, you know, the cost of a therapeutic can be much higher because the alternative is so much worse, right? And so where, where will we see this go? You know, I think what you're starting to see is synthetic biology starting to get really good at understanding and engineering the logic of cells. So how does an immune cell make a decision about what it should become uh, in terms of differentiation, how is it responding to an antigen? And how does that communication work on a consortium level? You know, we're starting number one to understand that and then number two to engineer that. So what you're beginning to see are some very clever cell-based therapies uh, where number one, we can take a cell out of a person and put it back in, or we could take a cell out of a different person and put it into another person where it's engineered to carry out a function that's getting safer and more effective. Things on the engineering of genome editing that's now becoming um, much more tractable, where you can target a particular mutation, and whether it's inside of a cell that's engineered for a network or even just a single gene um, that we know that if we revert it is going to cure a disease, you know those things are becoming possible. And so, you know, you're starting to see these kind of you know living solutions to medical problems, and I think that's very likely what we're going to see more of as we get better at it and it stays safer. And of course, you know, we're out there you know, trying to expand the genetic code and bringing in new amino acids, right? And so hopefully that's, again, 
you know, expanding our ability to engineer life into areas where nature hasn't gone. And, you know, that again, is again, as we come back to the topic at the beginning of this conversation, right, we don't have three and a half billion years to solve these problems, right? We need to open up new tools that allow us to solve them now. And one of the, I think, positive sides of this huge infusion of energy and capital into biotech is while there will certainly be some ideas that don't make it, we're allowing ourselves to test some really fascinating novel technologies. And some of them will truly will bear witness to tomorrow's cures. It's been a great time for bioinnovation. You know, that capital, it really is fueling future generations of, of impact. And I think if you look at the capital that's been raised, despite the turbulent public markets at the moment, the stats kind of speak for themselves. You know, funds continue to raise sufficient and substantial capital. I just read another billion-dollar fund just disclosed yesterday. So the money continues to, to pour in. $40 billion in the last 24 months raised from LPs into dedicated life sciences funds. More of that money is looking for early stage breakthrough ideas. Again, the dynamics might be, you know, at better valuations because of the correction. I think you'll see concentration and maybe bigger rounds into fewer numbers of companies. Those dynamics probably will be seen here in the next couple of quarters. But the reality is bioinnovation continues, I think, to be accelerating well into the future. I, I really like your comments, your perspective, and your vision uh, around the biocentury and the role of synthetic biology. But most importantly, Dan, it's really been a pleasure meeting you, being inspired by you, and you know, sharing your story with our, our audience. I wish you the very best with Grow Bio and really in all the endeavors that you have ahead of you in your next steps. Yeah, thanks so much, John. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. I appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guest today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye. 